ultimately, what got me to quit was I, I started thinking to myself, what will I regret more when I look back on my life? You're listening to the Elevate Podcast, and I'm your host, Robert Glazer. Join me as I talk to world-class performers about how they build their capacity and reach greater heights in leadership, business, and life, and how you can do the same. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Our quote for today is from Tim Ferriss, focus on being productive instead of busy. Our guest today, Nick Sonnenberg, helps businesses master operational efficiency. He's an entrepreneur, in columnist, and guest lecturer at Columbia University. He's also the founder and CEO of Leverage, an operational efficiency consultancy that helps companies implement the CPR business efficiency framework. And he's the author of a new book, Come Up for Air, which publishes the day this episode airs and shares that CPR business efficiency framework with the world. Nick, welcome to the Elevate Podcast. Thanks for having me, Robert. All right. So with with entrepreneurs, I, I like to start sort of at the beginning, uh, maybe with childhood. Were you... Did you show <laughs> entrepreneurial signs at an early age? You know, so were you selling homework or anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> it always starts with your parents, right? Um, yeah, sure. You know, like I was, we had a fig tree. I was like selling figs around the the neighborhood or baseball I heard that cards. One before. Yeah. Um, but I was always obsessed with time, even at a young age. Like yeah. even when I was like five, and it's normal for a parent to give your your kid a bedtime story. My mom, you see, is British. So she says things in this flowery, long-winded way. And I just didn't have any patience for it, even at five. And I'd be like, okay. So she was wearing red and she got eaten by a bunch of wolves. I get it. Like, move on. So I've always, even from a young age, yes, been entrepreneurial, but also... You were really, redesigning things. Yeah. Like yeah. I was already rethinking how work was done from five now. <laughs> Always well, obsessed right. with time. There's people who are daydreaming and creative side. It sounds like you are more about all right. How do we how do we fix this? Make it better. Make it yeah, more. Yeah, I was always I was always into fixing stuff, and uh, I was always into solving problems. And I was good at math. And ultimately, you know, that's what I studied uh, when I went to college and grad school. So I've always been into problem solving. And I think uh, even after school, I got into high frequency trading as a career where. I'm literally building algorithms and coding computers to trade stocks at microsecond speeds, trying to capture fractions of a penny based off of mathematical discrepancies. So I've always been interested in applying kind of my problem solving and math skills. And I've also always been obsessed with time and automation, which is all kind of intertwined yeah. with that job. And um, in that job, I really, truly understood the value of time because a microsecond can literally mean millions in that job. And so time has always just been kind of an underlying theme for me my whole life. So I know you worked on Wall Street for several years, you alluded to. So what what brought you there? Like, how'd you choose that path? And was it, were you very focused on this sort of like high efficiency piece of that? Like, was that where you ended up gravitating towards? No, you know, I kind of fell into high frequency trading. I graduated college a year early, um, not because I was trying to necessarily from the beginning graduate early, I was just really efficient with how I tackled my classes and just like took general education classes that ticked off like three or four, you know, check boxes for requirements. So I ended up, gra I'm there in my third year. I realized I'm about to graduate a year early. So I figured, hey, I might as well just get a master's my fourth year. And I took the GRE a week later. I went to UC Santa Barbara for undergrad. So I was just thinking, I'll stay there for my fourth year. And then that led to, oh, well, I took the GRE already. I might as well throw the application out to a few other schools. And to my surprise, I got into Berkeley for financial engineering. It was the only school I didn't pay the application for because I thought I had a 0% chance because yeah. like the average age was like 30 and it was number one. And it was the only one I didn't pay for. I paid for every other one. My mom paid for that one. She didn't believe I got in to the point where we literally drove up to Berkeley to meet with the program director to make sure there wasn't an administrative mistake. That's like how much confidence <laughs> we had in my acceptance. And so I got into this financial engineering master's degree. And randomly, I always liked math. I always liked games. 
I play chess. I played like 50 hours a week of online poker in college. It paid for my college. Yeah, this all this all sounds on brand. Yeah. Yeah. So it's all, you know, it's all making sense. And Bringing so, down the house must have been your favorite book ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. So I had a job offer out of Berkeley and it was to be a high frequency trader at BNP Paribas where I worked. I ended up taking that one. At the time before Lehman Brothers collapsed, I got a job with Lehman Brothers in the risk department. And most people were like, you should go to Lehman Brothers. Because like back then, Lehman and Goldman were like the two best ones. Because they're just known for their risk management. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I, I dodged that bullet. I landed on high-frequency trading and just loved it. And I did that for eight years, did quite well. So explain high-frequency trading for people who don't know what it is. Because it, it, it matches your you know <laughs> quest for efficiency. So, I mean, basically, you could argue that a high-frequency trader is helping to make the market more efficient. Most yeah. of the volume of trading today is via high-frequency or algorithmic traders. So I didn't know anything about the companies that I'm trading. I didn't research anything. It was purely just based off of math and data and pattern recognition and finding statistical anomalies. And the number of the thing comes up and the light says, buy or sell this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's like you're processing all this data using math that you're developing and you're, everything has to be perfect. You have to really be smart with how you do math. You have to understand computer science. Like we're literally bypassing like the kernel on the computer and coding algorithms directly on microchips to save a microsecond processing speed. I mean, like that's, and this hmm. is eight years ago. I don't even know what they're doing now, but like that's how crazy it was back then. We were investing millions of dollars in like microwave technology to send an order from New York to Chicago, you know, X microseconds faster. But it was a cool job. And I really learned to appreciate the importance of, you know, celebrating small wins. And I took that into kind of everything that I do now and how I run leverage. But what I learned there is it's not necessarily you have to save a second or a hundred milliseconds, like maybe two microseconds is what you're going to, what you can figure out now. And that's a win and like find a hundred of those. And why the time matters so much because presumably markets are efficient. And like once everyone realizes there's a mispricing or something, is that yeah. sort of the premise behind that? Yeah. Like I'm competing against every PhD in math, statistics, computer science, right? And, you know, everyone's smart and you know, it's not just about being smart. You have to be smarter than everyone else. You have to be faster than everyone else. If there's a signal that you can take advantage of that, you know, is a signal that you can figure something out one microsecond faster than everyone else and get that order in, that might be all that it takes between making and losing money. So what was the path from out of Wall Street to leverage? Like, was there a stop in between or was that a direct line? That's a good question. There was a stop in between. You know, I'm sitting there, I'm like 30 years old. I have some money in the bank, no wife, no kids. And there's a correlation there. Well, or causation. I mean, I, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> no, but I think like your risk tolerance is higher, you know, when you don't have that kind of obligation yeah. over you, right? If I, you know, had, you know, mouths to feed that relied on me, I would be a bit more risk averse. But, you know, when you're, just on your own and you've got some money in the bank, you can fire some more bullets and take some more risk, I think, just more easily. So I had an idea for a calendar app. This is around the time that Calendly was getting started. Yeah. And I had a, an idea for a different scheduling tool, still in the productivity space. And ultimately, I was working on it behind the scenes for a couple of years. And ultimately, what got me to quit was I, I started thinking to myself, what will I regret more? when I look back on my life, not trying to be an entrepreneur and doing this or kind of staying on the easy path, like where I know I'm going to be making a good living. I know, you know, everyone knows me. I've been at the company for a long time. And so I ultimately decided I would re really regret it if I didn't give it a shot. And if it doesn't work out, worst case scenario, I get back into it. Yeah. For everyone who's listened to, I think, Dan Pink's episode, I talked to him about regret. I think it was 90 the high 90% of regrets were all things that people didn't do. The yeah. one thing that people were, he said, if he could start a travel agency for all the people who didn't go abroad in college, that was the number one <laughs> regret that you see <laughs> because people think that they're going to have, oh, I'll go back. I can do that anytime. 
the, yeah. the only thing people regretted that they did the most was bully people. It's very interesting. Well, I use regret as a big a big factor in a lot of my decisions. Like yeah. when you're whenever I'm comparing, like should I do A or should I do B? I also try to think what will I regret more not doing A or B. Yeah, and I think that that is an interesting uh, vantage point to look through your decision making matrix. So, what does leverage do? So, Calvin was my scheduling tool. I quit. It's starting to get some traction. And during that time, I had an idea for what now is leverage, but back then it was a freelancer marketplace. And uh, I was having dinner one night with my ex-business partner and Zertual, which back then was one of the biggest virtual assistant companies, announced bankruptcy. And myself and my business partner were brainstorming what they did wrong. At Back then, we were just friends. And by the end of dinner, we came up with this interesting concept that wasn't out there yet on the market for what a virtual assistant freelancer marketplace could look like for the high end. And so at the end of dinner, I said, look, I can build in a, a hack together ver- backend version in two days. You get five clients and we'll launch in two days. And so I did that. Like I built this really like bootstrapped, hacky backend. He got five clients. And within a month, we had 100 clients. And within a year, we had scaled to 150 team members and seven figures of revenue bootstrapped just using off-the-shelf tools in smart ways. All of this sounds very impressive. People are like, oh my God, how did you do that? But we scaled way too fast, way too prematurely. And although we were growing very quickly, we had like 20% new clients coming in with like 15% churn. What year was this? I started it in 2015. Okay. And so 2016, we hit those numbers. And so fast forward one day in year two, we're working at a co-working space and he taps me on my shoulder and he says, I'm out. And he doesn't give me two weeks notice, two days notice. He gives me two minutes notice that he's leaving. And although we had all this growth and 150 team members and hundreds of clients, we had almost a million dollars of debt. We were losing about half a million a year. We had no org chart. So literally of the 150 team members, almost no one knew who I was. He was the marketing arm. So we lose the 20% of new business and I'm stuck with a 15% a month churn business with a bunch of people that don't know who I am. Sounds like a commercial for growing a business in the 2000s, in the 2010s <laughs> or I guess, yeah. Yeah. So like... <laughs> I mean, and you've you've been in the the yeah. entrepreneurial game for a while, so like you've I'm sure have war stories, and this re- probably resonates uh, with you. I would say being an entrepreneur looks really sexy in the rearview mirror. Like even oh, the man. people that are successful, when it, they get have the thing, you look in the rearview mirror, everyone goes, "Oh, that must have been great." And then you start yeah. hearing the worst. It's why I love how I built this podcast because. He gets to like the day that they were going to quit and when it was at its lowest and all that stuff. And that's that's the reality for everyone behind the story. Totally. And honestly, I really underestimated how difficult it is to be an entrepreneur. I, th- I was cocky. I thought like high-frequency trading was going to be the hardest thing that you could possibly do. And you know, then this hits you on the ass and it's like, wow, actually, this is way harder in so many ways. So... And when he tells me this, you know, I go white and I'm sweating. I'm like, should I just bankrupt this thing? I mean, like, seriously, this is just maybe it's unrecoverable. And in the next three months, we lose 40% of revenue. I'm cashing out my 401k. My dad is taking a second mortgage on his house to help make payroll. Bank accounts are getting frozen. I'm in a legal battle with my ex-business partner. I mean, it's everything wrong that could have gone wrong went wrong. I didn't bankrupt the company because I did see a path to fixing it. And I, it was obvious to me where we were struggling. I just didn't have a framework yet. And I didn't uh, realize how difficult it would be. And I also felt that it was morally wrong to just all the debt that we had to clients that we owed services to just to pick up and leave. Yeah. So ultimately, I decided to stick it out and worked extremely long hours, seven days a week for a long time. But the blessing behind all of it is it forced me to reevaluate every aspect of how we operated. It forced me to renavigate the ship and clean up all the inefficiencies. And I started realizing we were inefficient with how we communicated, both as a team, both with clients. Like messages were just all over the place. 
then I also realized basic questions like who's working on what and what's the status of this project that should be easy to answer with one or two clicks were not one or two clicks away from me answering. So then I realized I had to clean that up. And then lastly, I realized we need to document all of our intellectual property and our knowledge, even something like how you do payroll or how you onboard someone. Core processes, yeah. Yeah. Now, I was pretty good at that already because honestly, I probably would have gone bankrupt had I not have things had things documented when he left. But those were kind of the three buckets I started focusing on. And over time, started really refining this framework that ultimately renavigated leverage. And I'm happy to say, you know, we're profitable, way bigger than we ever were, fraction of the team size. And ultimately, I give credit to this framework that was forced to come out of it. During that time, people started reaching out, asking me to randomly consult them on efficiency and their operations. So I worked with a multitude of people from poop sprays to cryptocurrencies to famous um, speakers to financial advisors and everything in between. And what I realized was it didn't matter if you were a million dollar a year financial advisor or a hundred million dollar a year poop spray or a, a Fortune 10 tech company. It worked for everyone, regardless of, of size or industry. Those three buckets of communication, what I call planning, managing your tasks and projects, and then your resources, your knowledge. And so over time, I just started seeing the impact. And on average, we were saving people a full business day a week inside of these companies by just aligning them on best practices of all the different tools that they should use to collaborate better and removing this scavenger hunt. Like honestly, like if you think about it, when you're hired, you give people an employee manual of vacation days, health insurance. You don't say, hey, at Leverage, we use Slack for internal communication, Gmail for external. We use Asana for project management. We use this Coda for our knowledge base. This is how and when we use it. These are the use cases. You don't get that. So people get thrown into the deep end. And before they know it, they're just drowning in work. It's hard to teach them this type of stuff. And this scavenger hunt just continues to propagate. And so we saw tremendous success and impact. And ultimately, now that's what we do as a business is we do operational efficiency, consulting and training for anywhere from a seven-figure company all the way up to Fortune 10. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? Two years ago, I bought a dual suspension mountain bike for the first time, and it pushed me to ride trails that I had never been willing to try before. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing the possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. The Lexus GX comes with available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, best-in-class towing capacity, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. I've seen the new Lexus GX popping up all around my town, and not only does it have the capabilities to take you to new places on and off the road, but it's a great-looking car. The new Lexus GX is ready to raise the bar for you. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hey, Elevate listeners. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify is the partner you need to keep the cash register ringing for your e-commerce business. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading platforms. I advise a lot of companies in the e-commerce space and almost all of them have migrated to Shopify. And as a buyer, what I love about buying from Shopify-enabled sites is that they already know who I am and I don't have to create a new account or enter all my payment info. The ShopPay service makes it faster and easier to buy, which surely helps with conversions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S., and Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com elevate all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash elevate now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash elevate. So I'm curious, how much is this problem magnified 
by hypergrowth. So we're coming out of what I think will be known as the sort of hypergrowth decade, right? Where people weren't even trying to make money. So a lot of times you're trying to make money in a business, you try to scale, you try to become more efficient. There's <laughs> actually scale always implied efficiency. I think up until the last couple of years when when they almost disconnected from each other and and you're not even trying to make money, you're just trying to scale. I mean, how much more exponential does this mess become when you're in hypergrowth mode? Complexity scales exponentially with team <laughs> yeah. size. Yeah. So not only does adding a new person to your team, like I think that the whole framing of success needs to be reevaluated. When when I hear people saying, oh, I'm a 100-person team, that to me doesn't necessarily mean that's good or bad. Like for me, things like what's your revenue per team member or what's like the slippage? Like, are you getting full utilization out of those people? But to your point, I think that we lived we lived in a time where just how quickly you were growing revenue is what mattered. And then that meant you could go to a VC and get funding and have this on-paper valuation that everyone kind of respected. And profitability and some foundational things weren't as important. I think now we're getting a correction. And I think yeah. people care about profitability and sustainability and it's not sustainable to just keep adding more people to an inefficient system. And to what I was saying before, complexity scales exponentially with team size. Every person you hire, think about all the costs. You've got uh, recruiting costs, onboarding costs. You have to pay them on, on payroll. The odds that they stay after 12 months isn't that high. And then even if it all works out and you, you know, all those expenses are fine, you still are adding exponential complexity, meaning there's exponentially more ways communication and information can get transferred right. amongst a group of people. It's just a network effect. So when you can reduce the amount of people that you hire, you're reducing all of those costs plus all that complexity. It's so much easier to manage a small team than it is a larger team. And so don't get me wrong, there's a time and a place to hire people, but... When I talk to companies and they say they're underwater or they're drowning in work, right? That's why I called my book Come Up for Air. Yeah. Right? They need more capacity. They need more breathing room. There's a handful of ways you can get more breathing room. One, you hire more people, which has all the pitfalls that we just talked about. Yeah. Two, you could just tell your current staff to work harder. You know, you have a <laughs> full plate. <laughs> Two years of a pandemic. Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like my plate's full. We'll get a bigger plate. You know, yeah. <laughs> like at some point, you know, they're going to quit or get burnt out. Yeah. And then there's a third way, which is the way that, you know, I recommend and what I'm trying to teach people in my book, which is get more out of each person. On average, we see that people are wasting over a full business day a week in inefficiency, meaning they're searching for a document because it's not organized in the right place. They're back and forth on like the wrong channels or, you know, information's lost or like a document's just completely lost. And now you have to recreate an SOP or a process from scratch. Right. All of these things can be avoided if you just were more organized to begin with and had an aligned team on how you actually work together. And that avoids this whole problem. Yeah, I, I mean, there's like four questions, directions I want to take that in. So you mentioned your new book, Come Up For Air, comes out this week. I, I think if you could have named a theme for the year, 2023, if you had known that, that's probably the theme where people come up for air. I mean, it's a really interesting thing going on right now. You and I were talking before the show. We have suddenly shifted. You know, we always think things are going to go on forever in the way they were. We have shifted from the high growth, high growth unprofitability, I just merged that into one word, into... We need to be sustainable and profitable, which is not an easy shift for a lot of people overnight, right? If you're structurally unprofitable, that that can be difficult. So, you know, you talk about this in the beginning, but I, the, the hidden cost of this, it's been really interesting. I think there's there's two types of things that companies are are, are as they're looking to now. They're looking at just people, right? And there's just the wrong person. There's the toxic person that you've been putting up with because you needed a body and seat forever. But then there's the product you've been running that you shouldn't have or the other thing. And, and companies, it shouldn't actually... Cutting the bottom five or 10 or something really shouldn't even be a hard exercise. But no one's taken the time to do it because they've been so busy growing, growing, growing and and, and scared to death to not have enough resources. Well, there's, there's a couple of reasons why you don't do it, right? 
There's a couple reasons why. One, when you're underwater and you're drowning in work, right? Yeah, you can't get off the hamster wheel to fix the hamster wheel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> even if you know that you have a problem with an employee, but it's going to add even an extra hour a week to something where you're already at complete full capacity, it's really hard to rack right. your head around that. Also, when you don't have things organized, meaning you don't have all the projects in good shape, all the SOPs and knowledge in one organized place, you know, you're at risk. Like, how can I fire Nick? He's the only person that knows how to do payroll. Yeah. But what's really interesting, and I know I'm sure you have a million thoughts on this because I don't think people perceive it. Someone will say to me, Well, we did a reduction of these five or ten people, or we stopped this, or we did this product or ever. I'm like, how's it going? How's the morale? They're like, it's so much better. Like it's almost like I'd say two things. There's people who are just not a value fit and culture destructive otherwise. And then there's people that are just working on the wrong things, right? They are busy. They are not productive. And everyone's always amazed at how you can actually have better performance with less people. Or when you remove something, the rest does better. And I think there's a couple reasons and I'm sure you'll get into, but one of it, I realized like there's a hidden cost. Like, let's just pretend it's a, a product that you've been this neutral product or service line you've had, well, your sales team had to sell it. Your marketing team had to market it. Your HR team had to hire for it. And suddenly like getting rid of this thing, like it becomes the best thing. It's just, I think it's always this additive subtraction. People are so surprised how they can really, it could be better with less. <laughs> no, I mean, sometimes too many people slows things down. I mean, yeah. when I give talks, I have one slide where I talk about cooking a meal and it's like, well, with one chef, one private chef, you can cook the meal at this rate. Maybe two chefs, you know, it goes a bit faster. But like if you had 30 chefs in the kitchen, like everyone's just bumping shoulders, getting in the in their way. So at some point, more isn't better. An interesting thing, too, as it relates to this, is sometimes delaying the start of a project actually allows you to complete the project faster. If you're doing them sequentially rather than overlapping. Yeah, exactly. Like some a lot of people try to bite off more than they can chew with projects and they'll start two projects at the same time. But what you'll find is you'll be done with both of them at a later date than had you have been strategic and sequential and just focused on one, finished it, and then started the next one. Because all the context switching and back and forth uh, between the projects slows you down. And it, it's the same with people. Well, you said something earlier when we were just talking about this that I think is interesting. So people are tired. They're exhausted. Two years of a pandemic. Now people want to focus on being efficient. And, and I know we focus on this. I think people are going to assume that efficient means ask fewer people to do more, right? And it, like That's the employee's reaction to, oh, I'm going to be asked to do three jobs. I think a lot of efficiency is telling employees to help figure out what things to stop or shouldn't be doing. Like what is, I know that's the natural reaction. I think companies are all talking about being efficient. I think employees are scared. Like, oh, you're just going to ask me to do even more work. Well, I think one, we have to define what is efficiency versus effectiveness. Cause I think yeah. a lot of people get these things confused. So effectiveness is doing the right things. Efficiency is doing those things right. Yeah. This is the Drucker quote. Uh, you know, the there is. Uh, I'm gonna get. Uh, there's no greater something than doing with great efficiency something that should not be done at all. <laughs> uh, I'll quote my book. I, that quote is actually one of the chapter quotes of the book somewhere. I'll find it. But oh, I have another Drucker quote, chapter one. This is another good one. It is on their knowledge workers' productivity above all that the future prosperity and indeed the future survival of the developed economies will increasingly depend. But the one that you're talking about, I have later. There's nothing quite so useless as doing with great efficiency something that should not be done at all. Yeah, now we're talking. So look, when you start telling people, look, we need to get more done with less people, it's scary because they don't know that there's a better way of working. When you add up all the time people just purely waste, and for me, what I'm trying to clean up, when I'm trying to save people time or be more efficient, I'm not telling them, what projects they should prioritize or where they should Work be spending harder. their time. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just telling them, look, if something doesn't give you joy or right. tap into your unique ability, like the stuff you're really great at, we should be looking at ways to clear the rest of the stuff off of your plate. Or you're looking for leaks, right? Like the people yeah. that come into your house and efficiency thing and they look for like, where is cold air blowing out the door that's heating the outside of your house, right? Totally. Most people... When there's a leak and say you have like the sink overflowing with water, 
most people just try mopping the floor faster <laughs> and they're not spending the time to go and try to find where the hole in the pipe is to patch the leak. And ultimately, if you want to be, if you want to build a sustainable, profitable company, you can't just be mopping faster. You have to find the hole and plug the hole. So people get scared about the efficiency stuff, but when you add up the time that they waste searching for a document that's disorganized, coordinating a meeting back and forth, like when you add it all up, people are spending 60 to 70% of their time in a lot of cases on this work about work. And it leaves only 30 to 40% of their time on high value work. If you were to just take like a 40 hour work week, if someone is working 30 hours a week on low level stuff, and only 10 hours a week on high value, high output projects. Sounds right on the 80-20 rule. Yeah. Right. If you were to save them an extra business day and kind of get that 10 hours up to 20, you've just doubled their productivity in the sense you've doubled the amount of time from 10 to 20 hours for time that they could spend on really high value work. And this is where the leader's job is to say, yeah. what is bothering you from that? Where am I distracting you from that? What's not useful? Right? Totally. So... Sometimes giving someone back 10 hours isn't necessarily just a 25% lift in productivity. Depending on actually how much time they allocated to high-level work, you might be doubling the amount of time and productivity they can spend on those really high-value projects. So it's really, really profound when you can free up a half a day or a full day of people's time. So what's the CPR framework? Yeah. So CPR stands for communicate, plan, and resource. The what I found is People don't have a strategy in terms of when nor how they should use each of the tools that are common tools. Like, should you email your colleagues or should you use Slack? Under what circumstance should you use Slack channel versus direct message? When should you do that versus a task inside of Asana? And yeah. so basic things like it, when I ask leaders, when you hire a new person, you want to announce it to the company. Where do you do that? How do you do that? There's a complete fragmentation of answer. Or you ask someone, hey, if you want Robert to write a newsletter by Friday, where would you do that? Some people would say text, some would say email, some would say Slack, some would say Asana. And the fact that there's no consensus is what perpetuates this scavenger hunt problem because there's no alignment amongst teams or organizations in terms of best practices of what's the purpose of each of these tools. Like, think about the last 10 years, like Slack and Asana didn't exist. 10 years ago. So there's all these new tools, all these new ways of work, and no one's ever been taught the purpose of any of these tools. And so that's the purpose of my book is the CPR framework, which is the underlying framework of the book, is to align people on best practices. When should we even use these tools? How should we think about these tools? And it's a tool agnostic book. You know, Slack, Asana, any of these tools, you could swap it in and out. It's really the theory of what's the purpose of each of these buckets. Right. And any of the productivity tool overused becomes an anti-productivity tool, right? Totally, totally. Right. Everyone's like, oh, Slack, so you don't have that much email. And now there's Slack going off all day, uh, every day. <laughs> any of these tools are fantastic tools if you use it right. I've yeah. worked with companies where Slack was killing the productivity of the team because they rolled it out wrong. They had 16 different channels, all that kind of sounded the same, like social media hyphen one, social media zero, social media, media. And you have no idea when you should go to what channel. Yeah. You know? And you know, someone's locked out of the, the front office and now a thousand people know that Bob is locked out and now you just distracted a thousand people. And, and they're getting notifications on their cell phone and text. Yeah. And, yeah. and so like, if you don't have the right notification settings, if people don't roll it out properly and architect it properly, it's not going to help you. It could hurt you. But if you do use it right, where right is how you use it, and more importantly, when to use it and what problems to solve in that tool, it can totally transform the productivity, not of just the individual, but what I'm more interested in is how do you transform the productivity of the entire team or the entire organization? When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and free. LinkedIn isn't just a job board. It helps you identify and hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
Case in point, last year I asked the CEO of a major ski resort how he got his job, and he told me that he saw it on LinkedIn and decided to apply. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. On LinkedIn, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Hire professionals like a professional on LinkedIn. The team at LinkedIn is also constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process easier and quicker. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash practical. That's linkedin.com slash practical to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. The word that keeps popping into my mind that seems like in all these cases that you're diving in and helping, or is it, it's like, what are the rules of engagement? Like, yeah. how do we use this thing? How do we not use it? When are we all hitting do not disturb on Slack for three hours so that we can get our work done? Like, right, just some agreement. Totally. And and like people are always asking me, what's the best tool for this? I'm like, honestly, I can give you the preferences and what I think is best. The biggest lift though is you just align the team on what you're saying is totally right. It's the rules of engagement. You know, hey, in these circumstances, the rules of engagement is we're gonna use this tool. And of course, you want them to know all the bells and whistles and tricks and tips of that tool, but even just aligning them under these circumstances, this is the tool we use you're already helping to eliminate part of that scavenger hunt problem because they know where to go to look for certain types of information. All right. So what's the RAD system? So RAD stands for reply, archive, and defer. And the number one misused tool, and usually when we work with companies, teaching people how to use email properly and teaching them how to get to inbox zero is usually one of the first quick wins that we do. I am an inbox zero person and I use inbox and I will say like, I try not to be judgmental of people, but when I see someone's cell phone or something and the little red thing comes up with like 1982, I like, I have heart palpitations. I'm like, uh, how can you function as a human being? <laughs> like it's, it's like a hundred percent. And, and look, not every company uses Slack or Microsoft yeah. teams or Asana or Coda. Every company uses either outlook or Gmail. So a big part of our business is training people on how to use Outlook and Gmail properly. In just a few hours, we teach them that RAD system. We get them to zero and we give them the tools on how to stay at zero. And as you know, because you're an inbox zero guy too, that alone, depending on volume of email, can save three to five hours a week just using email properly. Well, everyone who texts me or messaged me in some app and asked me about something, I'm like, look, can you email it to me or else... This message yeah. will disappear and it will be forever. My totally. inbox is, it either totally. makes it onto my to-do list, it comes back later. So you either reply, you file it away, or what's the last one? Defer. So you yeah. snooze it, right? Yeah. So most people don't know, for example, that you can snooze an email. So what I do with 90% of my emails with Sandbox, yeah. Totally. <laughs> like It's one of the most powerful features. I don't have to worry about this until next month or two weeks. Yeah. yeah. And it could be, Driving directions to a client's office that's in three weeks. You don't need that sitting in your inbox right now. Snooze it. But if you delete it, you won't find it when you need it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Or if you archive it or or even like moving it to a folder for the client's name, like that's a heavy lift and a waste of time. Snooze it. And then the day of that meeting, it's at the top of that inbox. Or you're following up with a lead in a sales email. And if they don't reply back to you in a week, you want to know about it. You So you reply to them, you snooze it for a week, and then you're guaranteed that the sooner of a week or if they reply to you in less than a week, it deactivates the snooze and it goes to the top of your inbox. So snoozing is a very powerful tool that most people don't utilize. Most people are deleting emails instead of just archiving them. Most people are using folders when they could use search. So we teach this framework and then... Once we plug that leak, right, instead of mopping the floor, 
we then rip the Band-Aid and everything older than 30 days, we try to archive all those emails. So we give them a good reset. People, but, people must really like go, they must be like fighting you on this. This is, yeah, yeah, I mean, they've it, been living like this for years, it, right? We got like yeah. an in-house psychologist, you <laughs> yeah. know, and tissue and holding their hand. No, I mean, look, the thing is, since we're not ever deleting anything, we try to explain to them, yeah. look, we're just moving it to your archive. We're not deleting. It's all searchable. It's all there. And that's part of why we'd never recommend deleting. You have so much cloud storage nowadays. Right. Just archive you it. Just most if everything in your visual periphery is a priority, then nothing's a priority, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And most people make the mistake of trying to just mark things unread or read as a way to say that they're at inbox zero or not. Versus like, to me, it doesn't matter if it's read or unread. It's how much is in your inbox, Yeah, read and unread. And so that's what we teach. And that's a really quick win in most companies. So one of the biggest, we call it vampires of productivity in companies. And I, I remember actually a very successful company I worked with years ago, but I would go work in their offices. Just everyone was meeting all day long. So I, I mean, people know there's been a lot written about this. I think you've got four techniques you share for reducing time, wasted time in meetings. What, yeah, what are those? This is another quick win in, in businesses. And I mean, everyone's got email, so you should probably clean up your inbox zero. But if it's overwhelming to be thinking about tools like Slack and Asana and these tools, another hugely, hugely, hugely costly activity inside of companies is the way meetings are, are run. So the, the ways to reduce the cost of meeting, well, first of all, you should acknowledge what is the cost of that meeting. So if you just take people's salary and say divide it by 2000 you have their hourly rate. So if you're paying someone $100,000 a year, that's like a $50 an hour person plus or minus, right? So if you have $200,000 a year people on a one hour call, that's 50 and 50. That's like $100 of cost to the business. And then do whatever math you want from there, right? If it's a 30 minute call, it's $50. If you've got five people with different rates, do the calculation, but you should think of every meeting with a dollar cost associated to it. We we actually for a while we made people we gave them a rubric like that we made them put it in the agenda so yeah. meeting to talk about color of sweatshirts for yeah. the offsite three thousand dollars <laughs> yeah and I think that at least employees don't think of it like that but when I'm sitting on a call with like six senior people on the team you know I'm thinking to myself okay this is like this is a multi thousand dollar call like we better we better come up with some really good action items or decisions. Otherwise, like this is just a pure expense. That That's where it gets into a trap, I think. When you're inviting a lot of people to a meeting and having a recurring meeting and they're not engaging or having you know, someone in our leadership meeting will say, look, this is an interesting issue. It seems like two of you can go off and discuss this rather than wasting all of our senior leaders' time <laughs> on this topic when they're not even yeah. involved in the discussion. Totally. So the things that you should think about with every meeting and different people have different strategies. Some people every quarter delete all the recurring meetings from their calendar and see what gets added back. Oh, it's like meeting zero budget meeting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just like, so one, does that meeting need to have as many people that it has? Two, does it have to happen as frequently as it happening? Yeah. You know, three, does it need to be as long as it is? You know, you, we really as human beings fill the time allocated to us. So most of the time, if it's an hour-long meeting, I start to wonder, could this have been done in 45 minutes or in 30 minutes? And then lastly, does this meeting need to even happen at all? Or could this have just been solved asynchronously? So those are things that you could ask yourself. And I think that another thing that most people aren't doing a good enough job of is having proper pre-work, setting expectations of what success of a meeting is. Okay, guys. We've got 45 right. minutes. It should be a dialogue, not a presentation that you could have read before the meeting, right? Well, if if there's like 15 minutes of just like, let me present to you these slides Correct. of this. Ridiculous. Right? That's ridiculous, right? That should have been done asynchronous. They could have sent you a Slack message, an email, a pre-read of it. Finance is the worst with this. I'm on a lot of nonprofits over the years where finance and board meetings, and I've really outlawed it. Finance comes in and reads spreadsheets and gives financial updates. And it's like, I could have read all of this before the meeting. Yeah. And not only that, right? You're bringing up a really important point. I talk about this in the book. It's not just about saving time. It's about optimizing time. Time isn't linear. Not all time slots on your calendar are equally valuable. So if someone's presenting that stuff to you, 
at 9 a.m. on a Monday, which might be the most valuable time slot of all slots on your calendar for the week, right? Say you're a $50 an hour employee, but that's a blended average. It might be that 9 a.m. on a Monday, that slot might be worth $200 an hour for you versus 7 p.m. on a Friday in the back of yeah. Uber might be $10 an hour to you. So right. it's not just about saving time, it's optimizing time. And if someone is wasting your time on a live call at that precious, precious time slot after you've just had a relaxing weekend and you woke up and you worked out and you meditated or you journaled and you had your coffee and your brain is at absolute max horsepower. And now you're having to spend it watching something that you could have watched when you were doing nothing in the back of an Uber that Friday and it didn't require your brain to be at full horsepower. That's a huge, huge opportunity to optimize your calendar. So anything that's synchronous really should be for things that require collaboration, brainstorming back and forth. If someone's got a report out, they're giving me a Loom video and an Asana task, and I'll watch it in advance as part of the pre-work. If one person is talking the whole time in a 20-person meeting, it did not need to be a meeting, right? Totally. Yeah. And also, most people don't properly utilize agendas in meetings. And an agenda is a really powerful tool, not just to make sure that you accomplish what you want to accomplish on the calendar, on that meeting, but you want to eliminate all the pings and dings and distractions in your communication tools during the week. And if someone has an idea, you don't want them to feel like they've got to sit on it or it could get lost in the ether. But you also don't want them to distract you right now in the moment for something that's not urgent. So giving them an agenda gives them the ability to brain dump Right, Because your brain is for having ideas, not holding ideas. You don't want them to have to hold on to the idea, but you also don't want them to have to distract you right now over nothing urgent. So giving them an agenda allows them to brain dump and not distract you intra-week. And then probably 50% of those brilliant ideas by next week's agenda naturally fall off because they got self-resolved, but you avoided all the pings and dings in the meantime. Yeah, you know, you made me think of right when you're talking about the different value at different time. I think that's an excellent point. So I there's some calls that I get, you and I get. It's it's one of these, I'm pretty good at screening out things. I call it sort of a high risk little reward. Someone wants to catch up, needs some advice, something where probably not really gonna be that valuable, right? I travel to the airport a lot. So I'll say to my assistant, well, book that for when I'm in the car in the airport. I was driving in the airport anyway. Like there's not a not a lot to lose. So yeah, I, I don't value that time slot. You know, I'm sitting yeah. in traffic anyway. So like, yeah, I'm probably annoyed exactly <laughs> as it begins with. Well, yeah, and that's when I will look at all these report out Loom videos, right? Yeah. Uh, and by doing that, I'm now I'm properly utilizing that back of the Uber time slot, and yeah. I'm watching something that someone wants to tell me, and I'm freeing up all this live time at really high value time slots. Right. When you're sitting there and they tell you your flight's going to be, you know, two hours on the runway, like it's great to have that to go through. Yeah. Yeah. I know. Um, do you know Peter Shankman? No. He has, a, he, uh, he has a book called Faster Than Normal. I know that like when people want to reach out to him and he does allocate certain slots to just like mentorship. Yeah. He'll say, look, I'm going to the airport at this time. You can take the Uber with me to the airport and he'll talk yeah. with them. I know a lot of people that do that. I actually want to be better about it because I want to do it. But they do that with a fitness thing where, again, there are these meetings, and I've written a lot on this as separate around asking someone for something that has no benefit to them when you don't know them, right? It's different than your mentor. But I know a guy, and he come on a you can come on a hike for me with a bike for me. You can come my morning, you know, walk. Like come on my exercise with me, and I'm happy to you know yeah. chat with you because I'm gonna I'm gonna do this totally. anyway. Totally. I just became a member at this place in New York called Remedy Place, and it does like cryo and ice baths and all this stuff. So now my my go to is we can do cryo or an ice bath together if you want to. If yeah. you want to do like a fun meeting and it's just, it's just a bit different and I'm going to do it anywhere. You just want to see if they can, they can hang. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, something you said before, I'm going to test your theory on this. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about the the four day work week. This is sort of a rage these days. And one thing I've learned about human behavior and people are saying that they're testing it and they're saying productivity hasn't changed and all this stuff. And I'm not sure they have any empirical data that shows that I don't know that they knew what productivity was before. So that's beside the point. What I do know about leadership and employees otherwise is that you cannot take anything away once someone has had it. And I think for certain types of firms, this will work. I think for services firms and stuff, and we've heard feedback from clients, like they don't want to hear that people just aren't around on a day. 
and and Cal Newport had some distinct thoughts about this in my interview with him. When you go into companies, well, how are they getting this four-day work week? Well, they're going in and they're finding all the stuff that's useless and there's <laughs> we're not working and they're eliminating it. And his point is, or rework otherwise, well, you don't have to necessarily declare it's a four-day. Why, why wouldn't you just do that anyway if that's what everyone is doing? I, I just think that for companies for whom the four-day work week doesn't work or their challenges, they're not going to be able to get out of it. And yeah. why aren't we just going and taking all the stuff that we're eliminating anyway and do that? So do you have a, a stance on that either way? Um, oh, it sounds like I agree with what Cal's saying. Like, you know, who's to say four days is the right amount of time, three days? I think I think that that's not the right way of solving this problem. I think the way of solving the problem is you eliminate the crap that they shouldn't be doing. You make them more efficient. Which should make them happier, right? Which should make them happier. Like figure out a way to give them stuff that adds high value or gives them joy. Every quarter when I do one-on-ones and performance reviews, we talk about what are the three things you hate doing the most in your job? And that's part of the conversation, right? That way we can work together to try to eliminate those things off your plate. And some weeks it may be five days, some weeks it may be three days if you're focused on the outcome, but you're not setting this expectation that we only work four days a week, right? Look, I think most companies don't have clear goals for people clear ways to measure performance. They don't have accountability. They don't have transparency. Like for me, I don't care if someone works one day a week. If we've mutually aligned on what success looks like and they're able to hit what we've aligned on what they should hit and it takes them one day, then all the best. Like I'm actually rooting for them to to arb me like that because I know that they'll be an employee for life. So I think the main thing is Companies should have a system and a way to mutually align on what success looks like, hold people accountable. I do believe that if you run a company the right way and you've got systems of accountability, transparency, people collaborate properly, I do think that you can get by without an office. I do think culture-wise, though, there is a need to have in-person time. So you know, all the money that you save on an office, you could reinvest in some offsites so that people still get that face-to-face. But I don't think that the solution is going to be telling people it's nine to five or 12 to five or Monday through Thursday or whatever that is. It's all input focused, right? Yeah. I think it's really got to be output focused. Like, what is the output that we're shooting for? How are we going to measure that output? One thing that we do do at Leverage, which I do think is smart, that feel free to steal if you're listening to this. There's only one thing you do that you think is smart. (laughs) Well, I think you should implement, I think all the stuff we talked about is smart. But one thing as it relates to this four-day work week stuff that I do think is working is we have a few different types of vacation days that people can take. And I think that when you think about vacation days, it's either you're on or you're off. But I think that there's a third way to take vacation, which is an inbox zero vacation. And that's really helpful. So we have an unlimited vacation day policy, but I'm much more lenient around saying yes and approving any request if it's an inbox zero request. Because when someone goes away for a week and they're completely off grid, it's not that they come back after a week and they could start adding value. They've got to get through hundreds of emails and notifications. It might take them another three days to kind of recover from the week. So it's actually a week and a half. Oh, you're going the opposite of what I thought I said. So they can just oh. they can just manage the request but not do anything about it. No, they can reply to people, but when you come back, you're at inbox zero. Like you're not expected to make progress on your projects, you're not expected to show up to meetings, but you're expected to unstuck people, reply to people, and that way when you do come back, you've already throughout that week, you've already kind of lo- like allowed people to continue seamlessly what their work is. And you're not coming back to hundreds of messages. So I do think that there is something here with this inbox zero policy vacation. I don't think every vacation should be an inbox zero. Right. I was just going to say, it's not. You no. need some real unplug, shut it down You need time. real unplug. But you're saying, I'm guessing you could take more of these. Yeah. Like, let's just make up numbers here. Like, maybe 10 days a year, you're fully, fully unplugged. Like, you're fully off-grid. No one can reach you. But maybe there's like 20, 30 plus days that you're this inbox zero. And it could be that you're just replying when you're in the back of an Uber going to a cool beach somewhere and it's not really taken away from your vacation time. Like It might be the difference of like when your wife is sleeping or your husband's sleeping and you're doing nothing, spend an hour on the email, unstuck people, and then go and have fun for the rest of the day. 
So I, I do think that there's something there where you need this new concept of another type of vacation and allow people to go in and out of off-grid and inbox zero vacations. Makes total sense to me. So I'm curious, you mentioned this before, but how does company culture and employee satisfaction like tie up to time management? You see a direct correlation to that, right? I do. I think that when you're when we're talking about efficiency, the first thing people think about is saving time and getting more output. But I do think that equally important is the improvement to culture. I think that culture gets impacted. One, you get burnout. But two, people start dropping balls. You start losing trust in your colleagues. You can lose trust in multiple ways. Like If you steal $100 out of my wallet, I'm not <laughs> going to trust that you're an ethical person. Yeah. But if I ask you to give me a report by Friday, and I know that only you know, there's a one out of two chance that like you're going to actually deliver that to me. I just might not trust that you've got good systems in place to track work. And I don't trust that you're going to do it. So I have to then have anxiety and follow up with you over text and email and Slack and Asana because I can't trust that you're looking at any of them, right? right. So I do think that when people are dropping balls, and again, they might not be trying to drop the balls. It's yeah. just disorganization. I think that impacts culture and people's work experience. So I think when you align people on best practices and they can work on things that give them joy, tap into their unique ability, you're giving them more chances too to add value to the bottom line of the company, which feels good. And the more profitable the company is, the more money the company can pay them. And you just facilitate a better work environment through better trust. So yeah, I do think that it's not just being more efficient and being more profitable. It's equally important as impacting positively the culture. All right, Nick, last question. This is uh, my multivariant question. So it could be singular or repeated or personal or professional. But what's a mistake that you've learned the most from that you've made? I would say hiring too fast and firing too slow is a pretty expensive mistake that and an often Only repeated after. one. <laughs> from one. And it's, yeah. yeah, I'm trying to take a, and, it, and it's a mistake on a personal level, a professional level, a repeated one. Um, relationship advice. Yeah. Yeah. Relationship <laughs> advice. You know, I think um, it's easy to fall into that trap because I've been underwater myself, right? So when you're underwater and you literally can't imagine a single additional task on your plate, imagining getting rid of someone, even if you know deep down it's not a good fit with that person. It's really tough. It's a tough pill to swallow to know that for a period of time, you're just going to absorb their responsibilities. Yeah. But it goes back to that additive subtraction thing we talked about earlier, where, where sometimes it's literally 50% better afterwards, well, right? <laughs> well, yeah. Because like when, when you also like add up the actual value out of someone that's reporting into you, now you avoid all the one-on-one -on -one conversations because like you have no one or to talk to. the like, mistakes that they've been making, yeah. you know, assuming. Or, yeah. or the impact to your own productivity because it's an energy suck, yeah. right? Like that was something that took me a while to really wrap my head around. But when I was actually thinking about how much time and energy I'm spending stressing about an individual person, that if they were gone, like all of that brain space just frees up. That was really a big aha for me. And you know, there's never been a time where I let someone go and I sat back and wished that I would have waited another month to let them go. No, never in the history of, never. of, of this have I never, ever heard ever. anyone say that. So yeah. I think that that's a big lesson learned. And, you know, getting better at identifying kind of red flags early on and in the interview process um, is something that took me some time to get good at. All right, Nick, where can people learn more about you, uh, Leverage, and, and more importantly, uh, the book? Well, the book, you can go to comeupforair.com. You have all the information on where to buy the book, but also we have so many free resources and bonus material that go along with the book on that website that you can go and download for free. So go to comeupforair.com for that. If you need help with any of this stuff, you want to put your team through training or consulting, uh, my company, getleverage.com can help with that. And I'm on social media, so you can go and find me on LinkedIn and all those, all those fun places too, if you want. All right, Nick. Well, thanks for joining us and sharing your story. I, I, I think Come Up For Hair is, is exactly what everyone is looking to do right now. So you got the timing right on that one. Thanks for having me.
To our listeners, thanks for tuning in to the Elevate podcast today. We'll include links to Nick and come up for air on the detailed episode page at robertglazer.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd really appreciate if you could leave us a review as it's what helps new users discover the show. Thanks again for your support. Until next time, keep elevating. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join podcast royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox or wherever you listen to your podcasts.